I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, folks! It's that time of the week again, and we are back for another dose of everyone's favorite MotoGP podcast on the show this week. A look back to the final in-season test that took place in Misano, which saw two 2022 rookies make their big bike debuts. Uh, plus, your questions answered, and of course, I look forward to this weekend's Grand Prix at the Circuit of the Americas as MotoGP heads back to Texas. But First, uh, we are dedicating today's show to Dean Berta Vinales, the 15-year-old rider who sadly lost his life in the World Supersport 300 race in Jerez at the weekend. It's incredibly sad, incredibly emotive, seeing the pictures as well of his cousin Maverick Vinales in tears, as, as you'd expect. Keith, it, it's so sad, isn't it? And this is the third time this year we've lost a young rider after Hugo Milan and Jason Dupasquier in the CEV and Moto3 championships respectively. Surely, for all those who say that motorsport is dangerous, and we know motorcycle racing is especially dangerous, there has to be something done here now by the FIM, the organisers, MotoGP, whether that's you know anything from smaller grid sizes, an age limit, things to change the characteristics of tracks and engines on the bike. What, what needs to be done? Do you think anything does need to be done? Because I can't really think, I don't really think you can call these freak accidents when it's three in the last few months. We're victims of our own success, aren't we? We're, our series are producing such close racing in such depth now that we are victims of our own success. I mean, I think that I'm right in saying that all of these accidents are things that could happen at any time. The fact they're happening to youngsters on motorcycles that are so close in performance and the fact that we've got riders that are so close in performance that brings us into these great big bunches of really fast groups Personally, and this is a personal opinion, I, I, I have no statistics. I haven't worked through any of the, the, you know, somebody somewhere will be working out an algorithm, which seems to be the popular way of dealing with stuff nowadays. Um, I believe that we are we are promoting young riders too early into uh, too competitive an arena. I think that, that, as I say, we are victims of our own success, particularly the Spanish success. The Italians have a similar situation, but they don't really because they, they run these pocket race series on small cart tracks and so on and so forth. So the, the overall speeds are slower. You know, you've got loads of them in different um, competitive arenas. But I think that you pretty much touched on it on your preamble coming into this in that age, yes, I think there should be a minimum age, which should be 16 at least. Um, that will also give the rest of the world an opportunity to catch up. What's happening is, is the reason why we have so many really quick Spanish riders is because they start at such a very young age and are thrust into such competitive arenas so early on that the Brits, for instance, if we use our own country, you know, none of us lot start really until into our late teens to be that kind of competitive. It's, you know, you just, it just doesn't happen. You know, if you look at, you know, British Superbikes, which I was working on at the weekend, you know, it's a, it's a situation where everyone's in their late 20s by the time they really get going, by the time they find the funding for this, you know. Whereas in Spain, Spain's really forcing everyone, every other country's hand to try and catch up with the youngsters. Um, motorsport is dangerous and is a child old enough to take responsibility for themselves? I've got a 16-year-old here. She's pretty smart, but I still consider her to be a child in many of the decisions she makes. Um when she was 14, there's no way I'd want her on a motorbike racing. As it happens, she's not interested, which is good for me. Um, 
but and her mother obviously but it's kind of a situation where the other thing you mentioned is performance of motorbikes yeah we've been here already we talked about peter bomb had an idea there's been various people that have you know the Patronus team guys, you know, were talking about it, weren't they, where you should put the gearing slightly differently so that, you know, you don't rely on slipstream, so you're not dragging each other around. There are lots of things you can do to to limit the performance of, of the bikes as well and to, to, to negate some of the the incidences that you get on track. Slipstreaming is a, is, a, is a real trick art, dragging somebody around by that and increasing the performance of the bike by five mile an hour or whatever it might be in a straight line, bringing them all to a bunch again you know, four, five, six, seven abreast, great for telly. But when it all goes wrong, you know, we've had it three times now where riders have been collected in the middle of the track. Now that can happen any time, you know, again, a heart back to the BSB at the weekend. There are a couple of accidents there where riders very nearly came back into the path of others, having exited the, the, the you know, the track. It's always going to happen. It's a question of trying to minimise that. Now, is this a freak year? That's the other question, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm sure people have done some research on this as well. Is it just a freak year? Three three youngsters killed. Even if it is, it don't make it right. You know, there's got to be something somewhere done. The FIM, who, as you might have noticed in previous um, conversations, I don't have a huge amount of respect for when it comes to uh, acting proactively. They're, 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 you know, I think Dorna need to be across this you know our our biggest promoters in the world of motorcycle sport need to be across this in some way um it may be that we've got to take a bit of a step back and it may be that that some of the series won't look as good as they perhaps do at the moment when it comes to the you know the depth of competitiveness but by having all those really quick guys all bunched up on bikes that are within a mile an hour of each other it's a recipe and it's one that's cost three lives this year it really is one of those things, isn't it, where you think, is it a fluke year or is it, you know, even if it is, that, that can't be allowed to happen, can it be? And I, I used an example of in, in Formula One when the F1 driver Jules Bianchi died in uh, when he had his crash in 2014. Um, that was the first, and then succumbed to his injuries the year later, that was the first death since Ayrton Senna. And that launched a huge investigation into how they can make F1 safer and ended up introducing the halo and all this kind of things. But so is it is it on Dorna and MotoGP now to, to really, and FIM, to really, you know, launch let, an investigation? Let me butt in there a minute, Pete, if I yeah. might, with this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump across you with this one. Jules Bianchi, you know, that was an idiot with a bloody tractor in the middle of the, the, the runoff area. You know, like, hang on a second, that was just a massive cock-up by the organisers in allowing... A, a massive great piece of machinery onto a, a you know into a corner where anybody can spin off at any time because it was soaking bloody wet the conditions were awful you know it doesn't negate the fact that Bianchi died and we're, we're, it was horrendous I remember watching it live you know and I remember thinking what the bloody hell is that dirty great tractor doing in a runoff area now we don't get that in bikes you know like wh whether it's domestic British series or whatever it is you know we get a red flag before anything like that happens pretty much. So I don't know whether that's a great example there, Harry. No, I know my, my point being is that it, it, regardless of it wasn't obviously, you know, it wasn't a result of a racing incident, but the fact that there was this huge accident then instigated a huge investigation and a review of safety in the sport throughout. And that got introduced across the junior formula as well. So surely three uh, three deaths this year from across different motorcycle series. Surely that prompts an investigation, Pete regardless i think so harry yeah it was interesting an email popped up in my inbox after monza f1 from a senior lecturer at cranfield university and i think they did some of the testing of the halo device and he was sort of pointing out that look this wasn't luck because people were saying oh hamilton was lucky and he was saying look this wasn't luck that he got away with this this was science and engineering addressing a problem that you know it'd be noted right I, I guess going i can remember massa being hit by the suspension that, that came off a car and there'd been other drivers haven't there with with tires coming off and that kind of thing and and so they you know a study was was conducted scientifically to look at this find ways of improving it and then you got the prototypes you test it with the drivers and now they're in a situation where okay some of us might think they don't look great but you know it is addressing and improving the issue and i think not not to say that this is that there will be a technical solution to this because it's not a protective solution in bike racing but the process that was followed i think that that the fim as keith was saying they do need to step up dawner if the fim won't 
and, and investigate this, you know, look into this. There's, as Keith already raised a handful of good ideas there about potential reasons why these, why this is happening. Each of those should now be investigated by, you know, and looked into as what is it? Because three, three incidents like this in the space of a few months is, is certainly not normal. And there will be, you know, we're in an era of, of, of data, aren't we? As, as Keith is saying as well. And there will be links that we can make and lessons that can be learned. And, I was I was speaking to Alpine Stars in the summer break because for me the 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 one thing where that could help is if the riders behind could be warned sooner. And you've got this airbag technology. The airbag goes off. This really clever computer, bang, it goes off. Use that signal to send a warning to the to the riders nearby. Big flashing lights on the dashboard. You know, could that be done? You know, and Alpine Stars they said, well, there's nothing theoretically. There's no reason why not. You know. they're always looking at new ways to to use the, this this technology that they've got with the airbag. It could even go automatically to Marshall's post, whatever. But um, you know, they also said you could use the bike, use sensors on the bike. The same sort of philosophy of sensors, a computer that knows this, the millisecond even before a rider's hit the ground, it knows that there's an accident. At the moment, you've got Marshalls who are doing a fantastic job, but they're being pushed further and further away from the track by runoff areas, and they've got a spot when a rider falls off, and then there's got to be yellow flags and as we know, riders don't always see them. Look at Savadori and Pedroza. That was a near miss for MotoGP. Pedroza was mid-pack. Savadori was almost last. There was time there for a warning in some way to have reached Savadori. And potentially, you know, he might not have, he wouldn't, might have been aware, but he just, he had no warning at all. He didn't know there was a bike and rider down. So I think in, in that, that's where we'll end up at some stage in the future. And I hope it's not too far in the future, but a better way of warning the riders behind is there is could could even some you Keith raise the age of the riders maybe former riders could maybe speak to some of these young these young racers and try and pass on some experience because as, as Keith was saying they've got no experience of racing on these Grand Prix sized circuits with all of these other riders and just speak to them this is what happens with the slipstream this is what you've got to be careful careful of if a rider goes down in, in this situation you know this is what you do they're facing these things for the very first time aren't they and it can't be a coincidence that it is happening in these these classes with these teenage young teenage riders so you know in a nutshell i think yes they will have to look into it and you know i, I think i think the, the point is it, it would have such wide implications if some progress could be made because cyclists you know people going to work when they fall off the one of the biggest causes of fatalities i believe on the roads you know is a cyclist gets knocked off and a, another car coming behind hits them you know maybe there's something that could be passed on to road users and, and make things safer for for any two-wheel you know anyone using a two-wheeled uh, device should we say it needs an independent inquiry it needs to be taken out of the the three groups of people, Dorna, the FIM, and Erta, um, and it needs to be an independent, scientifically based, let's look at the facts, situation, not some kind of knee-jerk reaction. There were so many things in the conversation that you two brought up there. I mean, Justin Wilson was killed in IndyCar when the nose cone smacked him in the face. There was no halo arrangement there. Lovely, lovely man, two children, didn't live far away from me, um, you know, you've got incidents throughout motorsport. Henry Surtees, John Surtees' son, it couldn't get bigger or heavier profile than that. John Surtees' son killed at Brands Hatch when a wayward wheel became untethered and, and, and caught him right where it, you know, mattered seriously. Um, I, I worry about leaving it within our own groups of control because it's such a big subject. It's such a wide subject. It's such a hard subject. You know, you probably would have found as many people against a halo, in fact, probably more people against halo um, being brought into Formula One as there were for a halo being brought into Formula One. Certainly from a fan's point of view, you know, they didn't want to see a halo. You've got the full enclosure in IndyCar. Nobody wanted to see that. But when you're doing 250 mile an hour and there's bits flying around everywhere, it just makes common sense to have a closed cockpit, surely. Um, I know that, that that obviously with bikes, it's much more complex with bikes. It's much more complex with bikes. And I really don't see any other way. You have no idea what it's like, <laughs> unless you've been in a race like this, where you are battling with three or four other people. You've got your knee stuck in their fairing. You've got your elbow stuck in their handlebars. You've, got, you've, you've punted them up the back a couple of times. You've rubbed tires. 
It's great. Honestly, it's fantastic. And being a 15-year-old allowed on a on a 100-plus-mile-an-hour motorcycle to battle wheel-to-wheel with someone else on the track, there's no amount of pep talk that's going to stop any of that. Believe me, you can sit there and talk to your blue. If you, you try talking to kids, I've got four of them around here. None of them bloody listen to me. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is racing a motorcycle is such a, it's an extension of your arm. It's not, you're not thinking about it. It's not sort of, it's not a process that you go, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah. You might before the race, but believe me, once you get on a motorbike and start, once the lights go out, it's a completely different kettle of fish. You are battling. You are fighting. It's great fun. You don't even notice the speed. This, this is the other side of it. You don't notice how fast you're going when you're on a racetrack. It's just push, shove, pull, you know, slipstream, outbreak, whatever it might be to do the job. I can't tell you, you know, it is just the best feeling. And when it all goes wrong, when you're going over the again, if you if you if you I don't know whether any of you two are crash motorbikes at high speed, but it's kind of like you hardly notice it. You know, you're over the handlebars, whiz bang wallop. If you if you get hit hard, it, it kind of knocks you at, knocks your senses for a moment or two, and then you come round. Or in some cases, sadly, you don't, um, and that leaves everyone else with the problem of trying to work out what to do next. And I think that. The only way you are going to minimize this is is by legislation. The only way you are going to fix where we are at at the moment is by, even if you slow things down, you run into somebody at 30 mile an hour, you probably are going to do them serious harm. So taking the edge off the top speeds and the like, yeah, it will be a benefit in as much as it gives other people, other riders on the track, opportunity to see what's going on if you slow things down you've got an opportunity it's the reason why our speed limits in this country so all the bozos out there have got time to slow down you know if you if you it doesn't make you know if you've got mark marquez driving his car he sees stuff happen about half an hour before your average driver does because that's how his brain works the laws are passed as a generalization to to try and keep the majority of people safe because that's as fast as their bloody thick brains can think sometimes so basically you have a limit on that when it comes to racing, slowing down the overall top speeds will give riders a bigger opportunity to see things, to understand things, and therefore to perhaps avoid, you know, hitting another rider or getting tangled up in a bike that's going up the track or whatever it might be. But I would take it out of the hands of the FIM, Dorna, and Erta, and I would and control and obviously regional bodies. This is this is a domestic type situation, so therefore there's other you know authorities that get involved in this as well. It needs an overarching, over you know, an independent body should look at what exactly happened in these accidents. I mean, we're talking about them. I'm talking about. I won't include you two in it. I'm talking about it like I know what happened. I don't. I don't know exactly what happened. I saw it from a couple of camera angles, the ones that they, we were allowed to see. And 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 believe me, that can be so wrong just from the angle you're watching. It might not. Be. You might think you've got a handle on what happened, but it could be. Yeah, you, know, you see it from another angle sometimes if the camera's got it from a cctv or a track camera somewhere and you think oh i never saw that in the first first footage Mm -hmm. so we need all this lot combining with an independent body to look at that to understand precisely what happened you know was there no chance that a rider was able to avoid a fallen rider because everyone's going so fast was his eye line blocked you're not going to be able to you know legislate against a a blocked eye line you know that if someone's dawdling around on a racing line and a, a motorcycle, you know, Peter Huber and Norman Brown at Silverstone back in my day, 1983, you know, Norman Brown's dawdling around on the outside of the bloody racing line and, and Peter Huber's eye line is blocked. They come together, both are killed. It's a disaster. Uh, in that circumstance, you know, Norman should have pulled off. He shouldn't have been dawdling around the outside but back in the day that's what you did you know things have changed there's more you're not allowed to ride around on the racing line now you will get penalized for it i think it needs a review i think that's what we've got to haven't we it needs a review it needs to be independent with some very very sharp brains out of our industry and there are some nowadays we've got some very clever people that work within the industry to work with the with the independent review to try and make a recommendation and it needs to be fast it's not good this you know brush it under the carpet you know, kind of, I'm sorry to say that, but sometimes uh, racing deaths are brushed under the carpet. They're, they're, I won't say they're forgotten because the immediate people around them, it's, it's, it's not forgotten. And we live in an age as well where, where things do affect people more now. Back in my day, someone was killed and you kind of got on with what you did, stiff up a lip and all that, and you didn't really think about it. You just carried on doing what you're doing. Nowadays, it is an issue. Other riders out there are affected mentally by what's gone on. They've, 
you know, we are all in high definition nowadays. Everything is there for us all to see. And, and it is, you know, suddenly you think, bloody hell, it comes home much harder now than it perhaps did back in the day, unless you were closely involved with that particular rider or that particular team. Independent review now, instantaneously. Someone needs to fund it, needs to be done straight away, no messing around. Get them on it this winter. Get them on it now so that it's ready through the winter. So when we start next year, you know, they can at least put things in place for the following year. You can't just suddenly jerk up a load of, of, of new rules, you know, that completely blows apart all these wonderful domestic championships because we have some great domestic championships, particularly in Spain, Italy. But you need to start having recommendations that must be followed over a period of time, that must start to pull back the trajectory that we're on regarding youngsters and the, and the series that they're riding in. Yeah, I think uh, I think not a lot of people can find an argument with that, Keith. Um, but naturally, it was a very uh, sad weekend and, and our thoughts do go out to uh, the family and friends of uh, Dean Berta Vinales and, and everybody involved in that too. One other thing, and on a, on a different note completely, and I touched on it just there with the mental health issue, we have questioned many times Maverick Vinales's fragility. Now we are just when he was on the ramp to, you know, enjoying his racing again with the Aprilia motorcycle and the team that he was working with. How is this going to affect him with his progress for the rest of the year? I would suspect quite substantially. Just a thought. No, I think that's a very valid thought as well. And actually, just on that, when you're talking about the other young riders uh, and how riders react these days as well, you know, for the riders involved in that incident, you know, they're all the same age as well, 15 years old, dealing with that kind of huge shunt and, and the fallout from that. That's got to be a difficult one to deal with as well. I know they have a different mentality because they're growing up as athletes, but 15 years old, that's going to be tough to deal with regardless. Surely. Well, I mean, I, I have experience of this because, you know, me and my mates were bloody hooligans back in the day. And and there were one or two that didn't make it past, you know, their early teens because of, you know, illegally riding road bikes or over the fields or whatever it might have been. Um, it's a different mentality nowadays. You kind of shook it off back in the day. I don't know whether we were, you know, a bit thick. Perhaps, perhaps I am. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't really in touch with my uh, emotional side at that time. I don't know. But it seemed to be the same for all of my mates at school. When we lost one of our buddies, it was, um, you know, kind of sad, but but not like it is now. I think it affects a wider audience now. And I think that might, again, be down to things like social media. Suddenly, people's feelings and people's thoughts are out there for others to consider you know family thoughts are out there for other people to consider suddenly we look at them and see how how it affects people and thickos like me start to go oh yeah you know you start to understand it better how how it affects some people how deeply it's traumatizing you know quite a wide range of of competitors at the moment i mean i think that this weekend it was a bit of a shocker i mean i don't know whether you 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 had an opportunity to watch the old bsb but um Tommy Bridewell, who has lost his brother, Ollie, of course, back in the day at Mallory Park. I mean, Tommy Bridewell, every time he wins something, he points at the sky. And, you know, it's a, it's quite an emotional thing. Uh, and he is always, you know, Ollie left us way too early, if there is a, a time that you're supposed to leave us. But anyway, um, and Tommy was very eloquent in part ferme, you know, regarding this accident in Spain. Um it's on the minds of riders nowadays. I don't think it was in the past. So now's the time to sort of be dealing with it, particularly for these youngsters. You know, I think that independent inquiry, I keep banging it off about it. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's wait and see. And, and hopefully things are done and that in independent inquiry is launched uh, swiftly. Um, but as just to reiterate again, our thoughts uh, to Dean Berta Vinales and, and his family and friends and to everybody involved in, in that uh, tragic incident over the weekend. Uh, let's move on now and talk uh, a bit more about MotoGP. And uh, in uh, we've got a dog again. Who is this? It's not mine. Whose is that? Pete's dog. Is it, is, it is Pete's Pete. dog. We had a I question thought... in one of the YouTube comments, which was like, <laughs> come on, own up. Whose dog was it? And I was certain it wasn't mine. <laughs> He's you not mean, owning up to it. Uh, I know Pete's got chickens as well. We'll <laughs> hear his chickens as well in a little while. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's here. He's vocal. <laughs> I can't see the dog, but I can definitely hear it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
we'll, we'll have to get uh, if you could bring the dog on for for your predictions for this weekend. Great. Right. Um, It'll probably make more bloody sense than the ones that we made. <laughs> well, even the headphones didn't drown that one out. Um, right. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on to MotoGP and and look forward to this weekend by looking back first at the test in Misano, uh, the final in season test, um, which saw a lot of obviously developments being tested for 2022. It was Rossi's final test. We had uh, Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez make their debuts on the big bikes. Uh, Pete, can you talk us through a bit about sort of the big standouts that you learned from testing? Well, the, the main one was, I guess, the, the new Honda. The Honda, as we knew, you know, they've been saying this This is even before the test, that this was going to be a really, really important one for them. As you were saying, it's the last one during the season. So the next time they get to test with their riders will be at uh, the end of November, and then that's it for the year. So they really, they want to know, start to get the pieces in place, if you like. So they really, <laughs> no holds barred. They came out with at least one completely new bike. We don't know. There might even have been a second one or just some different parts on the prototype, if you like, as they were calling it. But it, it was almost like a, a sort of a Yamaha at the front and a Ducati at the back, if you wanted to sort of summarize it. It's, uh, it's very different to what they're using at the moment. Air intake, as I say, looked pretty similar to what you see on most of the, the bikes now, the, the sort of the square style, uh, different frame. The, the different air intake probably points to a different engine, which we've been saying before, you know, they've been trying to deal with these grip issues. And they haven't got on top of it. That that tells a lot of people that the engine needs some work. And of course, they've been unable to do that because of the technical freeze. That's coming to an end. So now they're able to change the engine, and they had at least one new engine design. We assume for this bike, there was another bike with a slightly different air intake, which could point to a different engine design. So, yeah. Anyway, either way, a lot of big changes. As Marquez says, it was big in both ways. In that, you know, it was the improvements were big, but some of the disadvantages were also big. So now they've got to kind of piece everything together, and or narrow things down, haven't they, for this next test um, at, at Jerez at the end of November, because that's when really you want things in place and then the factories can go away over the winter and come out for the pre-season testing there's only two pre-season tests and then you're going racing so it's uh it's an important moment to get things right but clearly we could see that honda have been working very hard and um you know they were very cagey very very cagey about uh you know what had been changed and everything else it, the press releases had no pictures from Honda of any of these all black prototype bikes, which is always an example. And the quotes were very, you know, the official quotes, I mean, were in the press releases were, were very kind of vanilla, shall we say, no commitment on about anything, just that we tried some new things for next year. <laughs> they were a bit more, the riders, when they were being interviewed and, and things, they were a bit more, they gave a bit more away, as I say, and, and Marquez did say, yeah, big changes, both directions. Paul got to try it on the second day. So he stuck with his usual bike on the first day, and then he got to try the prototype on the second day. And a similar thing, he said, you know, you, you know, big changes, and we need to see where we go with this. But that was the that was the main, uh, I guess, the highlight of the test. If you're looking for a big development, Yamaha also had a prototype bike, um, although the, the riders referred to it more as the as, as the chassis for next year. Uh, and it did turn out that it does seem to have had a new engine as well, but the engine was very minimal, the changes to it. And, and Quattraro did kind of admit, I hope there's a little bit more power found for when I try it next time. So as we know, that's where the Yamaha is really struggling is the top speed. Um, Suzuki, they brought a new engine and a new frame and they sort of, but they split it into two tests, if you like. They didn't test it as one bike. So they did more work on the 22 engine. It does seem to have a bit more power. Sounds quite encouraging. But the frame was more interesting because it sounds like they could use it for the remaining rounds of this year. So it must be able to fit around the engine that they currently have. Um, so we could see that this weekend at Kota. Uh, Mia said it improved the braking. Um, so more stability. But the trouble was, of course, you, you get more stability, the bike's harder to turn. So they were trying to work on getting back the, the agile nature of the, of, of the bike, plus these it seems gains in keeping the gains in braking and uh, the other manufacturers, Ducati, Aprilia, really just aerodynamics seemed to be all they were testing. We don't know what course, what was going on <laughs> under the skin, should we say, but that was the obvious things from the outside. Um, KTM had Danny Pedrosa. He, he's been working on this different bike for most of the year. Um, it seems Oliveira tried an all black prototype bike again. We don't know exactly what was different on it. Um, so we need to wait for that, but Basically, this was the last chance before the final test of the year, which is when really all of the factories will aim to give their riders 
the, the, the what they hope will be pretty much the 2022 bike. That was really the purpose of this test. The lead-in time for engineering, this type of engineering is so long that you've got to make a decision really before we get to next year, before we get to the early test. They just can't just can't dream up something. But I think the significance here is is that the rules haven't changed. The rules are the same for the way that you manufacture the motor. You know, the, the actual parameters that they've got to work within are still the same. The rule book is exactly the same. So they've, they've, they've got the same rules. They've just got to try and work out how to, to make that work within those rules. And therein lies the big problem, I think. You know, despite the fact we've been on a big technical freeze and there will be lots of innovations and stuff that they would have thought of in that time in during the technical freeze, they virtually have I'd, – I'd be an advocate of, of extending testing, bearing in mind that they've been in a technical freeze, so therefore the, the slow lead-up hasn't been there. Um, I, I think they're creating a rod for their own back when it comes to – what's going to happen at the beginning of next year i'm looking forward to seeing what the final incarnations of these things are and where the where the differences will come but they won't be that big because they can't because the rules are the same and testing wise you know you come out with something radical within the rules and and it don't work you're stuck with it from qatar onwards (laughs) if you're a factory team so a real difficult one for the factories just as you were saying, Rossi's final test as well. So a small sort of landmark there, you know, I think 22 years after his first test, should we say. Um, I did ask him, you know, he, he did say he's never really been that much of a fan of testing. You know, racing is, is what he's about. But I said, is, was it, when he stand out? And of course, they tended to be the tests where he got on a new bike, you know, the first time on the Honda 500 at Jerez in 99. And then the first uh, MotoGP ride he had is after the eight hours with Colin Edwards, they jumped on what is now the modern breed of premier class bike. And then the Yamaha was, was the other big test that he had. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's Sepang 2004. So, but yes, yeah, so that's, uh, that's another sort of milestone for, for Rossi reached and, and four more races to go in his full-time career. Yeah, emotional. <laughs> in, well, it will be. I'll tell you what, it will be. I've got another Mizano coming up later. That's going to be, that'll be the yeah. final one. And that, that place is going to be on fire, quite literally, I think, during the weekend with Rossi's last ever race. Um, interesting, again, I keep mentioning BSB because for those of you that, that aren't aware, <laughs> I, I got parachuted in at the weekend to um, help out with Eurosports coverage because Jack Bernicle was sick. I hope you're getting well, Jack, by the way. Um, but the, but the, the big buzz was the, amount of interest there is from world championship riders in BSB as they drop through the ranks. 
And the biggest one for me was the fact we were expecting to see Frankie Carcetti, who is Joanne Mir's crew chief and manager of Jake Dixon. So um, I think we can almost, from what I understand, expect Jake Dixon to be back in BSB next year, which will obviously say to us that Darren Binder is likely to get that Patronus berth direct up from Moto3 into MotoGP. Having just said what I've said, it could be complete. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was very interesting around the British Superbike paddock, some of the rumours that were going on around there, who was, was coming. But I think the Jake Dixon one is quite credible. He came from British Superbikes. He was a you know British Superbike winner. Um, that's what gave him his chance in, in Grand Prix. And, and it's looking more tenuous, the, 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 the ex-Patronus team for 2022. It looks like Binder is, is well-placed to um, get himself that ride. And therefore, Jakey is left with virtually nowhere to go. And the fact that I didn't see Frankie Carcetti, it was only a rumour that he was, he was uh, en route to, um, to Alton Park at the weekend. Apparently, he got held up, I was told, somewhere, traffic, oh. airplanes, whatever it might have been. Um, one of the petrol stations. <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> no, 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 I won't, I won't, I won't. But I was, I was going to dedicate a whole piece to you being on, uh, back on No, on don't, the do <laughs> don't do how that. How was it? How was it, though, back behind the mic? You remember how to do it? I think so. <laughs> it's called... <laughs> <laughs> for those who uh, who are the audio version of that you'll have to watch the video version to see what keith might I, I, I enjoyed it i mean it was it was like wednesday i got the call um jack's had a chest infection for a while he was supposed to do the bold door he couldn't do the bold door um he wanted to do it he's an old soldier jack burnicle so he's been doing this and this is the first one i think he's missed in in all those years of doing british superbike so so they rang me um because effectively i'm uh, i'm cruising around with my family and children at the moment and I'm working on other things but not on broadcast stuff so and it was really interesting because I've not worked with Eurosport for a long time and what a great little team I mean I have to say the BT team through North One is a great team um, but Eurosport is, um, is, a, is, a, is a level of social life probably better if you like I mean they were really really easy going welcome me in there with with open arms and and I enjoyed the weekend Alton Park in the sunshine is just a fantastic place to be anyway um and I had intended I didn't tell them this um I had intended on being there on Friday um because I always go to Friday BSB if if I've got a Friday where I'm not doing too much because that's the best day for me there's not a lot of traffic you can wander around and see people because it's not too intense just yet um and so it's a really social social kind of day and i, I went to round one with julian I met julian up there for a pint and a pie and and to, to so and alton is alton cadwell park and brands hatch in uh, brands hatch uh, grand prix circuits are my favorite brands is the top for me brands hatch grand prix circuit is they don't come any better uh but then alton alton is uh is sort of a a wider cadwell in as much as you've got a little bit more a little bit more area i'm uh, I mean, it was quite, it was amazing, actually. I was in, in, in commentary at one point, shouting and screaming and jumping up and down like I do. And I just happened to catch out my corner of my eye. This guy sat behind me. It was Jonathan Palmer. He'd come in as well to, to, to watch the bikes. No one even knew he was at the track. I mean, Stuart Higgs, who obviously works with Jonathan, um, hadn't even said anything that JP was coming in. And Palmer is, he's a proper car bloke, as you know, Harry. He's a proper car bloke, ex Formula One. But when he was in Formula One, I was in 500 Grand Prix and, and we had a we shared a uh, sponsor, STC Builders, and um, so we've known each other for quite a long time. But JP is the epitome of OCD. That man is just he spots everything, and the reason I'm saying this is because his tracks, since he's his consortium have owned them, are manicured in comparison to how they were. It was a bit wild before, which some people might like daisies and all the rest of it out on the grass, but. Now it's all cut, lovely. And Alton Park, I went round the track with Higgsy in a, in a, one of the pace cards, cars. And um, they've done a real job of taking the barriers right back to where they can now. I mean, there's not a lot of room on British racetracks to move barriers back because there's all you know, boundaries and trees and stuff that they can't dig up um, that's always in the way. But they've done a really good job. I mean, and I have to say, Stuart Higgs actually managed this uh, M4 around there quite well. And I remember thinking, crikey, if this thing lets go, that little gravel trap isn't going to stop it. <laughs> Despite the fact it had been taken back quite a few more yards, it's still tight. And I think that's the difference between American tracks, British tracks, 
you know, um, and the speeds of the bikes we've got now, British superbikes. Uh, while I sat there with Jamie Whittam, my era, probably the 500ccs was chucking out about 130 brake horsepower. Now, bear in mind that was through four-inch wheels with tyres that were made of concrete and a power band of about 2,500 RPM. Jamie Whittam's bikes would have been about 160. They're all over 200 now. And on a track like Alton Park, when you stand at the side of the track, you you have to stand back a bit because – they are so fast. They are, and they've got so much grip. Uh, and you think, crikey, if this thing lets go, it is going into space. Um, which brings us back again to the, the, that perennial problem that all, you know, series have. Has it got too quick? You know, you watch the 600s, the super sports class, perfect bike for that racetrack. Really, really good. But there's something about them animals. The bigger the bike, the faster the bike. Is that, gladiatorial you know mm. danger involved in it. i mean honestly it feels like you're going to bite your hand if you put your hand over the fence you know it's just it is really one of those situations it's like a zoo without the fence bloody fast <laughs> great though really really good well it, <laughs> so, it yes, was enjoy me weekend Thank yeah you very much, it was Eric. excellent to uh to hear you and that you even have me watching as well that that the, 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 do you like the fact they have an in camera in the, the camera in the commentary box that kind of scares me a little bit that they've got a camera in there. yeah well it does me because um uh, then, then i get all the nose jokes and all the rest of it but <laughs> it's, it's I, no, I, it's I, I no different you, from here i'll tell you who's um, a very good commentator Jolian Palmer, he's pretty decent on on uh, on the old Five Live stuff. Actually, he's he's sort of really uh, done well, well there. I think, I think. Com- commentary really once once you've developed a style for it, particularly if you've been a reasonable racer in that class or that area as well, it gives you kinds of insights that that you know respect. You know, journalists pick up on what's being said and what's being done, and usually get it fairly accurately. But drivers, riders, spot it as it's happening quickly mm. you know they're, they're they're across whatever the the situation is i mean i love working with other riders i mean like jamie whittam's great fun james hayden who i work with at the weekend as well james hayden very i mean i've known him since he was what 15 riding for ron haslam in the in a british team over here years and years and years ago and he's now a very successful man um away from the tracks you know he really does commentary just because he he's a bike man and he loves being there um so it's kind of, you know, commentary-wise, when you work with, with these guys that spot stuff before it happens, it's, it's exciting to be alongside people like that as well, people that share that kind of passion. I can't help myself. I really can't. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is bloody ridiculous. And, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't waned with age either. I thought maybe the edge would go off of it a little bit, but it hasn't at all. I mean, still got it. Well, I still want it, I think. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it won't be uh, too long till you're back behind the mic again. Um, just coming back to, uh, I know it sort of diverted a little bit off. We were talking about um, Darren Binder and possibly his promotion. Of course, knowing our luck, by the time this goes out, that would have all been announced in the complete opposite direction. Um, but I did <laughs> I did want to just chat also, because I keep, you'll, you'll know the experience, I imagine. You know, the first time for Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez on, on the big bikes, that must have been a, a pretty big moment for them as well at the Misano test. Rayol, I can't speak for, but I can speak for Remy because I've spoken to his dad often. His dad, obviously, me and him were raced, raced together, travelled together and so on and so forth. He has always said that Remy is a big bike rider. He's always said when you see him out in the bush, you know, the way he drifts it and the throttle control he's got, he's a big bike rider. And I think that's been proved when we got the 765 Triumph. You know, as soon as we got on something with a bit of horsepower, something that, that suddenly gets out of order, um, something that's got a bit of mid-range like the 765s have, Remy came into his own. Um, once he was fit and not injured. Um, and I think we're going to see that next step from him. I think he is capable of that next step uh, on a MotoGP bike. Now, Rayo Fernandez is you know great rider as well. I don't know about the step he will make and how easy he will find it. Um, but I believe Remy will. I think he's going to be a good MotoGP rider. Both of them were, were quite fast as well, weren't they? I mean, uh, you know, Fernandez, 2.4 seconds off. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive, isn't it? And, and Remy, pretty close, three seconds as well. They were, you could see them sort of moving up, getting closer from their first laps as they moved up, you know, chipping away at the lap times. And uh, I think both of them absolutely loved, as you can imagine, the, the power of the bikes. You know, they, they were all smiles when they got off it. <laughs> I think they had a problem in that. You know, particularly for both of those guys, really, at the end of the day, if they'd have overstepped the mark um, in that test, 
You know, they've got a world championship they're both fighting for. You know, end up with a broken leg in a test while you're, you're trying out a motorbike. So I, 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 the test is great from, from their own point of view. They had a, had a feel and an idea of what they've got to come. But I don't suppose either of them was anywhere near like their potential, truly, on a MotoGP bike just yet. Well, it will be exciting to uh, watch the progress, won't it? Now, uh, before we uh, have a proper look uh, forward to this weekend, we've got time for a couple of quick uh, questions that have come in. Um, off the back of, I think, what we were talking about last week as well, and actually uh, this is on World Supersport from Al904CC, um, who has said, speaking of uh, Scott Smart, who do the panel feel, or, how, or what do the panel feel, I should say, about the 2022 regulations for World Supersport with the introduction of the V2 um, Panagel and MV800 uh, Triumph 765 alongside the 600cc Yamahas. Personally, I'm all for it as the series desperately needs a refresh as only Yamaha still make a 600cc race bike available. Well, I think he's just that last line absolutely sums it up. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it does need a refresh, but I wouldn't want to be Scott Smart in a million years. Because trying to work out a set of set of rules that's going to balance this lot up is like, it's virtually impossible. If we move away from that for the moment and, and go to just world superbikes in general, mm. you know, who do you legislate against, the motorcycle or the rider? Razgali Oglu is doing the business at the moment on the Yamaha. Is it the Yamaha or is it the rider? Was it the Kawasaki that did it before with, with Jonathan Ray on it, you know? It's a combination always, and you know Scott Smart's big problem is not legislating against a rider's performance. You've got to legislate against any advantage the motorcycle has. You've got to try and equalise that, and sometimes it's masked by just how good a rider is. So then you look to the second guy in, on a Yamaha or the second guy on a Kawasaki and see where they are, and see. And again, it's it's running those those um, you know details, those intricate. Uh, bits of data that you've got to get hold of to to work out where it's faster, why it's faster, what can you do to equalize that performance. And then if you're a manufacturer, of course you want to get a bloody performance bonus. You want to be able to make it right. So you're you're up against riders who are bitching about another bike being faster, a manufacturer who's bitching about, you know, don't don't take 500 revs off me. I mean, Kawasaki must be a bit sick at the moment because all of a sudden they've got a real battle on their hands in Razgadioglu. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a Scott smart. No wonder he ain't got much hair left. I think he, you know, it's a really difficult job. Now, Scott is a clever bloke. He ain't just picking things out of a hat. He's, you know, this is technical and he's working it out properly, but I still wouldn't want his job in about a million years. Fair enough. Well, thank you, Alan904CC, for that one. And we've got one more from Alan. Uh, this is uh, who doesn't have a bit of tyre talk as well. All uh, our tyres too advanced, needing too many parameters to work optimally. Optimally. Yeah, that's a word, isn't it? Um, the rider who hits the pressure wins the race, according to Alan. Well, again, I have this conversation quite often about tyres and how you manage tyres and how you look after tyres. <laughs> and you're going to laugh. But going back to BSB at the weekend, I couldn't work out why Tommy Bridewell's Ducati was managing his tyres as well as it clearly was. He had pace above everybody else on the same tyres. Um, I couldn't quite work that out. And then Blandy, Stuart Blandy, used to work for PBM, obviously doing a bit of work somewhere else nowadays, and um, he said um, they're running KTEC suspension. So all of a sudden it's a bit... He's out of sequence with other stuff. Suddenly, KTEC may have found something at Alton Park that the other manufacturers in suspension hadn't quite found or hadn't quite landed on. You've got to bear in mind as well, it's something like a British Championship meeting. Um, there's no time for testing. You know, the first day was wet. You know, it was difficult conditions, da-da-da. So you lose, you know, your first couple of sessions due to track conditions. So sometimes you luck into a setting that works. Tommy Bridewell was all at sea in qualifying. He hadn't gone anywhere. He had to start from, from I don't know, 14th place, I think it was, the first Superbike race. Um, so they, again, it's, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes it's just you get lucky. There are things that you don't know that are going on sometimes. Why is that tyre holding together better than the others? Is it the way that the rider has set the bike up? Is it the way the rider rides the bike? You are tyre managing in some respects. If you want to go back and have a look at a really, really, really old bit of footage, it is in colour, I can tell you, but it was from the black and white era. I won a race at, um, I think it was a, a bloody ITV 
superbike race or something at uh, Donington Park. I can't remember. It was 1983 anyway. And early part of the race, I was way back down. But just because I had the maturity there, just a hold fire to not get too excited. It was a very cold day. And tyres never held together really well. And I just slowly but surely made progress. Because I was of an age where you thought about managing tyres, I won the race, came through and beat, you know, all the top guys at the time to win the race right at the end. Just no one could touch it because they'd burnt their tyres up and I hadn't. And that's all it came down to. And sometimes you see that in races, um, probably rarer nowadays because tyres are so much better than they were back then. Don't know. It's a tricky subject, but anyone that's you know got a decent crew chief, decent data engineer, and a good head on their shoulders will work out what the optimum is for making that tire work for the longest period, and where their best performance is coming from, and whereabouts in a race it's coming from. Well, it's it's crucial, isn't it, Pete? Because we saw Fabio Quartararo really iron up his competitors' tires at the end of the last race, didn't we? We did, yeah, yeah. He he wanted to have a close look at how the Ducati was using. I think it was the soft compound, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, all of this is kind of exaggerated by the close racing, isn't it? That that maybe things that wouldn't have been noticed before. Any small differences in things, and and tires are the most important component on the bike. I mean, many many years ago, as a, as a student at university, uh, the lecturer was explaining to us that you know. This was an F1 example, but I think it applies to bikes. He said, look, you know, if you get the setup of the tyre right, as in the camber, the angles, the pressures, everything else, you can find, what, three, four tenths a lap, okay? Now, you imagine the cost of finding that same gain through aerodynamics. Millions, millions, wind tunnels, CFD. Well, and you can find that just by getting the tyre working, exactly as Keith was saying, you know, a different type of suspension. If you get that tyre working spot on, you, you're getting, you're, you can make big gains that you cannot find it anywhere else. You could, same example with the engine. If you were to, if you, the cost of making three tenths, an engine three tenths a second a lap faster, you know, the R&D you would have to put into that engine, you know, all of the prototypes you'd have to run, everything else, or you can just focus on getting the tire to work, you know. That's why the tires are always important. And then when you've got control tires and then when you've got the closest, you know, we keep seeing these record record breaking top 10 gaps and top 15 gaps in MotoGP. So riders are noticing, you know, if a tire is Michelin's getting a lot of stick and, you know, sometimes it's because, you know, the, the gaps are so small that riders are picking up on things that, that, that didn't matter before because suddenly any little advantage, it, it can be a, a position higher in the results. So I think they're in a, it's a, it's a difficult one because tires are always important, but they are, literally a black art aren't they they're you know they are they're, they're not something you can just program digitally and it will do exactly what you want it, it as keith was explaining if you have someone with a lot of experience in your in your garage as a crew chief they can they can make a big difference in terms of setup or whatever it is but certainly if you get the setup of the tires right if you get the tires working in the correct way the example of tommy rival making a tire last longer and we see it in motor gp as well that that's that's a massive that's a, that's a huge step towards winning a race and it's you know we hear that that Ducati have got there's a, there's a company called Mega Ride, an Italian company, um, that, that do a lot of analysis of you know data and, and analysis of tires and things like that. So to, again, to try and help them optimize how they use the tires because it's such an important part of the end result. So yeah, it's 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 always going to be important in racing. You know, as long as you've got via racing vehicles sitting on pieces of rubber, that's going to be the most important thing to get right. Well, thank you, Alan, for that question. And as we uh, rapidly head towards the end of the show, we rapidly head towards uh, stateside America this weekend. MotoGP is back in Texas. Keith, talk us through the Circuit of the Americas. What do you love about it? What do you hate about it? Um, I hate the surface on it and they keep messing around with it every year. So hopefully it's going to be all right this year round. I mean, they've diamond cut it a couple of times and put bloody great grooves in it and pits in it. And God knows what shot blasted all these million pound motorbikes, multi-million pound motorbikes with dust and crap that's flying off of everything. So hopefully it will be in good condition. The track problem is everybody's struggling in Texas. I mean, I'm amazed it's going ahead. You know, ICU units are full in hospitals and so on and so forth. Austin has not been in the best, um, Best of health, quite literally. So fingers crossed first that everybody's healthy. Austin's in a good place. Um, fantastic event. I love, you know, America. You got if you're in the in the in the city itself of Austin, which is walking distance from most of the hotels, although it's a short drive out to the, the track, the Circuit of the Americas is just outside Austin. Um 
But if you're going out there, then Sixth Street is the main street through the middle of town. It's got all the main clubs and bars and the usual sort of glitz and razzmatazz during a Grand Prix. Pete's Piano Bar, this sort of dump with the, the dueling pianos back to back. You always meet a huge amount of racers in there that are just out of their faces um, after the event. So that's quite good fun. And if they're not, then certainly there'll be a lot of uh, mechanics and techs that are in there having a good time and people singing and generally having um, a, a really good time. So that's Sixth Street. But I prefer Rainy Street, which is um, little bars and, and there's kind of in the front gardens of looks like houses. Um, so Rainy Street is a, a really sociable place as well. And you can walk, if you like, you know, between Sixth Street in the centre of town, Rainy Street, which is a bit more out towards the lake. Um, Austin's a great city. It is a music city. So there's lots of bands. There's lots of concerts goes on. You, I mean, if you you turn on Sky Arts or whatever it might be that, 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 that show music on TV over here, you'll come across, you know, concerts that have been done in Austin and so on. Um, so it is a cool place. It's not like Texas. I mean, Texas, you're all thinking pickup trucks, rednecks and shotguns um, and Colin Edwards. But the, the the situation is, you know, different to that. I mean, I would say Austin is probably closer to somewhere like California than it is to Texas um, in actual amb- ambience and so on. But but it is a great place. The track itself, massive. It's in a, you know, it's a big track. Um, what are there? Something like five bottom gear, first gear corners on it. So straight away you think Mickey Mouse, but it's kind of not like that. I mean, it's a, it's an odd place really from – if you've got five bottom gear corners for a motorbike, it's just like a bloody nightmare. Um, but it's got some fast bits to it as well. And, of course, the, the iconic first turn followed by the snake that drops down the other side of the hill is is fairly spectacular. But for me, it's the surface and the bumps. I think Cota have gone through a hard time financially, and I would believe that they've probably been going through an awful time with this pandemic. It doesn't make the kind of money. We've arrived there sometimes where there's not, enough staff to look after the car parks and, and the smooth running of it. And like most places in America, they do it their own way, you know, whereas, you know, most other tracks will have a system for getting people in and out. You know, Cota have got buses that, that that run between the car parks and the like, and sometimes there's six of them all in a line and sometimes there's none of them, so you have to walk and so on. It is a unique venue. I enjoy it there. I think it's one of the... It's the highlight, one of the highlights of the year purely and simply because there's nothing else quite like it. Um, and you can pick out. I mean, who's not to like, you know, Denny's, for God's sake. Denny's, I mean, for <laughs> breakfast. It's just perfect. You just can't get better than that. I mean, if you don't mind the calorific input of uh, the typical American roadside diner, then probably it isn't the place for you. But I love it. <laughs> and, and Pete, how brilliant as well to, to head back after a year away. It is exactly. Yeah. It, it seems like such a long time since MotoGP was there, doesn't it? And as Keith was saying about the surface, I, I think that there's been some more resurfacing. There was, there was sort of some parts that were done last time we were there and, and the riders didn't like it as Keith was pointing out. And I think they've done some more work since, but obviously that was coming up for almost two years ago. So a lot of unknowns, the track's not not used too much. It's usually quite dusty on the first day as well. So it's going to be interesting. It's obviously, as Keith was saying, that, that first, that, that uphill, the first rise, I mean, that, that takes some walking <laughs> to go up there. Um, it, it's a funny, it, I mean, the, the track was, Kevin Schwantz helped design the track. It's, it's one of the longest uh, tracks on the calendar. It, it just sort of, I cannot but think, it needs a bit of editing, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, as Keith was saying, those, those, those slow corners, they work fine for the formula one cars with the, with, with the downforce, but you know, the first part of the track is fantastic for bikes, the back straight, the last part of the track, fantastic for bikes, but there's a lot of left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right in between that, that possibly for bikes. When you talk to the riders, they always say, looks fantastic on paper. Didn't quite live up to it when you actually rode around because it, it is tighter than it looks. Some of those corners, but as Keith was saying, fantastic addition to the calendar. There's nowhere quite like it. Um, and yet, obviously, for Mark Marquez, it's been almost a, a dream place to race apart from last year. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether he can pick up where he left off or will things be totally different this time around. It's funny. There are a couple of places at Cota. When I, I always walk the tracks whenever I'm out and try to see things that, you know, as you do, make suggestions. And I've, I've made this suggestion a few times. There was the first, if you like, 
well, second, if you don't include the hill that you're talking about. At the end, after you've got the big long snake and then you've got the back straight, I think it's turn 11 maybe. It's a hairpin before you go on to the main straight, which isn't really a straight because you hanked over on the side anyway. But um, the hairpin before the main back straight never looks like there's enough runoff there to me. I stepped through it one day and I thought, do you know what? If I designed this track, I would have had that another 50 meters further on because if somebody loses brakes into there, it just looks plainly to me like there's not enough runoff if you get legged into that particular gravel trap. And it amazes me that even though my opinion probably counts for nothing at all, how it was so dismissed when I when I brought the subject up. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes is wrong in you almost need whistleblowers when it comes to tracks. I mean, Catalonia, what happened to Louis Salom? You know, that that little area of, of vulnerability that was there. I'd walk that track and I'd never spotted it. But there will be riders or team personnel that might have seen it. And I almost believe that there should be like a you know, like a ballot box, you can drop a drop the, the, the suggestion in and it should be taken seriously. You know, people we work with in Grand Prix are professionals. They know what they're talking about. They're pretty good at what they do. You know, and if you spot something that's not quite right with a track or, or, or a facility in some way, there should be a system. I think the dog agrees. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> I think, I think you should be able to. I think you should be able to make the comment and it should be taken serious, and it should at least be looked at. Keith, you but it wasn't whistleblower. Fingers, fingers crossed that nothing happens at turn eleven, or I think it's turn well, eleven anyway. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Yes, it is a, a good weekend as well. It is that time, gentlemen. Get your predictions in, please. Um, think about it. I think I'm going to go first. Oh, I'm going to go first this weekend. Um, because uh, I've already written mine down. So I know. I know uh, <laughs> Have you been studying the form? Have you uh, prepped for this? I've been, I've been looking at the form, but also I'm, I, I, I even look at this season. You look at the form, but you can't really like it. it it's just the one consistent is really Fabio Quartararo, isn't it? So, you know, you can't really rule him out on any weekend, regardless if you say it's a Yamaha track or if it isn't. So I'm going to put Quartararo for the win this weekend. I think he's going to be a bit fired up after uh, Bagnaia's last couple of wins. He wants to get back onto that top spot. I'm going to put Bagnaia in second, and I'm going to put Jack Miller in third. All right, who wants to go next? Who's ready? You, you're far too polite. No Marquez in there. I tell you, I'm, I'm, you I've think? been reluctant to not have Marquez in there somewhere, I've got to say. Okay, I'm going to go Jack Miller's going to win. Okay. Mark Marquez in second place. And I'm just wondering whether the Suzuki is going to be something like Rins on the Suzuki. I kind of, he goes good round there, but it's just a question of whether it's going to work for him. I'll go Rins for third. Well, he won it, didn't he, in 19. Um, so Rins in third for you. Okay. So, uh, Pete, you're up. I will go with Mark then. <laughs> I think really? Yeah, yeah he's going to. Want revenge? And I'll put Banyaya second, so it'll be a rematch from Aragon. And uh, I'll tip Mark that long back straight. Yeah, they're both pretty quick bikes, aren't they? I think it's, was it one point two kilometers that back straight. As Keith says, it's not the fastest straight because it's got that that hairpin Keith was talking about to go on it. But it, just in terms of length, it is a it's a long back straight. So I just think the Yamaha might suffer on that straight. But I think yeah, Quattararo third because he'll he's always there. Say, yeah, I was going to say no. I thought you weren't going to put Quattararo in there. I thought I'm going to be the only one for one weekend that puts a Quattararo in. Marquez is a good shout. I think he'll I think he'll be up there, but I think he'll bottle it and fall. Uh, bottle it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a bit of hate for that. <laughs> now I've heard it all. <laughs> Marquez bottling it. <laughs> no. Bottle is probably the Brilliant. wrong word then. Trying too hard, maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, then. So to reiterate, it's me, Quartararo, Banyaya, Miller, uh, Keith, Miller, Marquez, and Rins, and then Pete, Marquez, Banyaya, and Quartararo. Well, we'll wait and see, because right now I need some more points on the board, because you and uh, you two both have six, and I've only got three. Uh, but so <laughs> we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. It is, uh, of course, all gets going once again this weekend for the uh, Grand Prix in America. MotoGP returns to the circuit of the Americas, and then we will return straight after uh, for more MotoGP chat, as usual. Get your questions in, get your predictions in as well. Leave them in the comments below. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us. We're all over it. Just search Crash MotoGP 
GP. Leave us a review as well, wherever you get your podcasts. And we shall see you right back here next week. My thanks to Keith and Pete as ever. Until next time. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 